Some of you may take some notes today in the back of your bulletin. There will be a few scriptures up on the, on the screens this morning, but I wanted to begin uh, this second part of what I'm going to say is a three-part series uh, by reminding us of something that the Lord tells us in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19 says that we are not to add anything or take anything away from the word of this prophecy. It's a flat out, a strong command to not add anything or take anything away from the word of this prophecy. In that same vein, scripture, all from Genesis to Revelation, teaches us that we can't add anything or take anything away from the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross at Calvary. That it is Christ alone that promises that we are freely, by his grace, justified through redemption in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ alone, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. It is Christ alone that we are told in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. It is in Christ, Galatians 6.15, that there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, not Jew, not Gentile, not Greek, barbarian, Scythian, or free, but all are one in Christ. It is in Christ alone that we are told in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God himself has beforehand prepared us that we may walk in them. And as Peter says in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved in Christ. So here in this letter, as we're about to study this morning, when Peter exhorts his reader and every follower of Jesus Christ, uh, as we will read in verse 5 in just a moment, to add to your faith, let us be clear that he is not suggesting that anything can be added to the saving work of Christ. Nothing can be added to the redemption that took place at Calvary. Nothing can be added to the blood of the Son of God that was shed for you and me that we celebrate this morning. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, and faith in him, the believer is promised heaven, as we are told, Paul telling the Romans in Romans 10, 9, and 10, for if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. For it is with the heart that 
Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's the same that Paul was talking about to the Christians in Ephesus when he said that the mystery in Ephesians 3, 9 through 12, that the mystery from which the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the church and to principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ. So a question is begged as we, you know, launch into now Peter saying, be diligent to add to your faith. A question emerges, what instruction then is he giving? I believe the answer to that question comes in a couple of places in Scripture. Number one, Ephesians 4.15 tells the believer that they are to grow up. They're to no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but are to grow up into the measure of Christ. Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth, he told them in chapter 4, 14, 1 Corinthians 20, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he said, don't be babes any longer, but be mature in your understanding. And Peter is continuing that thread in this next section when he's saying uh, to the believers to add to their faith. He's saying, folks, fellow Christians, those of you who know you've been saved by the blood of Christ, it is time to grow up and it is time to be mature. <laughs> Strong word, huh? And one might say, well, okay, but how does, how does that happen? Is it just by osmosis? Do I become uh, an older Christian by hanging out with Christians? Do I get mature by hanging out with those who are mature? Some of that is true, but in a greater sense, what Peter is saying, that the lifelong process, shared with someone this morning, we're a work in progress, the lifelong progress of growing up in Christ and of becoming mature in Christ, lifelong process, takes place when the believer embraces these seven ingredients that Peter's going to say, add to your faith. You remember last time we were together, we talked about what it is that God had given the believer to start with. A phenomenal list of ingredients for a fruitful life. We said that God started with giving six ingredients, faith, his power, uh, everything that pertained to life and godliness and exceedingly great and precious promises, uh, a way to share in the divine nature and a promise of escape from worldly corruption. Verses one through four. I mean, that God just says, here, you've come to faith in my son, Jesus Christ, here. He gives all, all those things. And Peter recognized it. And as he's, Wanting to, uh, you know, remember, he's writing this knowing his death is around the corner. 
He's writing this knowing that wolves are going to come in and seek to bring false teachings and, and divide the body of Christ and, and do horrific things, which uh, some of us here may understand has taken place in the church. But he wants and desires that every one he is writing to and that will read this letter throughout all of time would recognize these seven ingredients that are to be added. And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. I take you to verse 5 where he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And he begins with virtue. He's going to talk about virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. And we're going to take little bites this morning. I'm going to try and get through four or five verses here. But I don't want to rush too quickly through this because each one is paramount. So as we come to this first uh, added ingredient, you want a fruitful life in Christ, I want a fruitful life in Christ, no one wants to live an unfruitful life in Christ. So having been given all those things by our maker, Peter says, now add to your faith virtue. What is virtue? My first you know, search was to go, well, who in the scriptures gives us a, a definition or gives us a picture of a virtuous individual? We certainly would have to remember some of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, 1st and 2nd Kings. Though Elijah was not perfect by any means, you remember one time he was so afraid of Jezebel that he went and he hid, and God comes and speaks to him, 1st Kings, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? I don't know if you as a Christian have ever found yourself, you know, backing off because you just are afraid of what, what's coming down the pike. And it's as if the, the gentle, invitational voice of the Lord says, what are you doing here? And Elijah very virtuously picks up his character, so to speak, and goes out and, you know, perhaps the story of the, the Mount Carmel battle with the, the prophets of uh, Baal and everything. Elijah, Elisha, I'll mention some others. Joshua, remember Joshua and Caleb when the children of Israel were going to go into the promised land and Joshua and Caleb went ahead as spies and spied out the land and they came back and they said, I mean, all of you know the story very well, or a lot of you do. It might be new to some of you, but Joshua and Caleb came back and said, hey, it's a great land. Yeah, there's some giants there, but we can take them. Let's go in and take this land. And the people were so afraid that they wouldn't go in. And God had commanded them to go in. And because they would not go in, they were uh, given to wander for 40 years. But, but Joshua was choosing to do what was right in the midst of a difficult situation. Samuel, remember the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel? 
Samuel would not put up with Saul's compromise. Samuel was a prophet of God and he saw the first king of Israel, Saul, compromising in in what it meant to walk with God and obey God's laws and commands as for a king. And Samuel wouldn't put up with it. He pursued the good and chose to pursue it with concrete actions. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, virtuous. I mean, he comes into the holy of holies and he sees almighty God and he says, I am undone. I, have a, I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And God takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and purifies him to be a messenger for, for Jehovah God. How can we not think of Daniel, of course, standing for what is right and good, even in the midst of being placed in Babylon and commanded to eat the king's delicacies, and he, he wouldn't, choosing to do what is good and right. Hosea, maybe you're not familiar with Hosea's virtuous characteristic, but God called this prophet to marry again his prostitute wife, to take her unto himself as a physical illustration that God wanted to show his people who had prostituted their religion that he would take them unto himself again and he would marry them. Behold, I have married you to me, you are mine. Powerful, virtuous characteristic in in Hosea. Uh, The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, how can we not think of that when we think of virtue? The virtuous wife, Proverbs 31.10, her worth is far above rubies. Her heart, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. Verse 12 of Proverbs 31, she does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. She considers a field and buys it, and from her profits she plants a vineyard. Verse 20 of that same proverb says, she extends her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise and call her blessed. Charm and is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, a virtuous woman, shall be praised. How can we not think of Ruth? Remember Ruth? Ruth, who is with a grieving mother-in-law that had lost all her sons. Ruth had lost her husband. And yet Ruth decides, I'm going to stick to Naomi like glue and tells her, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Whoa, virtue. That's what Peter says to the believer. Add that to your faith. It can be summarized. In other words, virtue is the habit of choosing what is good and right 
despite your own inclinations. Scripture says, add that. There's another ingredient that comes to us, though, and it is the second one on the list, knowledge. Now, this is an interesting one. It should be noted that there are two primary words in the New Testament Greek words for the word knowledge. Some of you may have studied this already. The, the first that we're most familiar with is uh, pronounced gnosko, a Greek word for knowledge, and it means to know by experience. Uh, an example of that is John 1.10. It said that the, uh, Jesus came into the world and the world was made by him, but the world did not, what? Know him. The world had not experienced Jesus. Gnosko. But do you want to know what word Peter uses here to add to your faith? It is not gnosko. It is a form of that, the second form, which is gnosis. Now, what's captivating to me, I hope it is to you as well, is that the definition of this word knowledge simply means to seek to know, to inquire, and to investigate. So Peter is admonishing the believer to always be in, a, in an attitude of heart, in an attitude of mind, to, to seek to know, to seek to have Taste and see that the Lord is good. To always be willing to inquire of God. And to investigate what the Lord has said. Now this knowledge, let's not confuse knowledge with wisdom. Who was the wisest man in the scripture? Solomon. It is said that he was the wisest man in all the world at that time, but that initial wisdom that he had was a gift from God to a humble servant that was saying, I don't know how to run a king in a kingdom. And so God gave him wisdom, and then God gave him a whole bunch more that became distractions to him. And when he grew older and more accustomed to the pleasantries of being a king, his heart grew foolish, and his wisdom failed. How? By not possessing Gnosis, by not possessing a desire to seek to know the Lord, by not possessing an ongoing inquiry of what God wanted of him and what God wanted to do with him, uh, to not have an investigative heart of, Lord, what is it you are doing in my life? Now, Peter says, add this. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me. This is the Lord speaking. Speaking to you, to me, and everybody. He says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me will find me. Jesus said it in Matthew 7.7. 7. He said, uh, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter, uh, I believe it was, and you have it up there, we do. Yep. Acts 17. We're told that they were more noble. Some versions say more fair-minded. The Bereans were more fair-minded than others because they searched the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. They investigated. And beloved, we can't just, you know, come to a place at any time in this glorious walk with Almighty God, this glorious relationship that we have with Christ himself, and continue to grow and mature without a seeking, investigative, and inquiring heart. Without virtue, choosing to do what is good and right in spite of our inclinations. Third ingredient to fruitfulness in our Christian life, self-control. Now, self-control we know by reason of Galatians is a fruit of the Spirit within us. So why would Peter say then add to it? What he's saying is that enact upon it. The Spirit of God dwells in you and the the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So act upon the fact of what God has uh, embedded in your new man. I think Abigail is a, a great model for self-control. Remember, some of you might recall who she is in Scripture for Samuel 25. She had a husband named Nabal. And uh, David and his men approached Nabal when they were on the run from Saul and they, they wanted food. And, and Nabal decided, you know, hey, you're, you're a, a, a prisoner of Saul. You're, you're a fugitive. I'm not going to give you anything. Not recognizing that God had anointed David to be the next king and it would have been a good idea to stay within his good favor. But Nabal was kind of a foolish man. In fact, the scripture says, as his name is, so is he. His name meant foolish. First uh, Samuel 25, 25. And think about this woman who for all her married life practiced self-control and not defaming, destroying, tearing apart her foolish husband. And when the opportunity arose, the Lord took care of her. First uh, Samuel 25, 3 says that she was a good, a woman of good understanding, beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. Abigail is a great model for self-control and it being a fruit of the spirit Peter's saying enact upon that which you already possess fourth ingredient for fruitfulness in our lives perseverance perseverance uh, we could define it from an English dictionary you go to Webster's uh, 1800 version of the dictionary and you'll find a definition there. But I think a, a biblical picture of someone who persevered also does the job in a, maybe in a more powerful way. To me, Nehemiah is a great picture of perseverance. Nehemiah persevered when he was threatened. Chapter 4 of his prophecy says that uh, 
the people around, he, Nehemiah was called to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls and the temple. And as he set out upon this, you know, endeavor that was much larger than him, bigger than anything he could do, he saw the hand of God work mightily on behalf of God's desire for God's people to be where he wanted God's people to be. And as he began his trek toward uh, that goal, at one point he was being threatened by the people around him that his uh, endeavor would not succeed. And so the Israelites came to him and said, hey, we're afraid. Chapter 4, verse 14 Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He persevered to encourage those around him. Do you have somebody in your life today that encourages you to persevere? Hang in there. The world around us is crazy. And as someone said, it's not falling apart. It's all falling together. Christ is coming. Nehemiah persevered when he was in need. Chapter 2, verse 20, he told the people that the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. They didn't have what they needed, but God provided what they needed. Are you in need today? Persevere. Add to our faith. And above all, Nehemiah is an example or a model of someone persevering in his worship of God. The, the Jewish leaders had forgotten uh, the temple and its importance in the presence of God being there and their worship of God. And they had let it, as I said in a previous study, the temple was beginning to be in disrepair. And Nehemiah was strong. Verse 11 of chapter 13, he contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. In other words, when it comes to the worship of God, he was willing to speak to anyone and say, hey, this is what we're to be doing because God is the one that we worship. And we need that in our life at times. We need someone to come alongside us and say, hey, this is what we're to be doing because God is who we worship. He's a model of perseverance and we're to add to our faith perseverance, virtue, knowledge, self-control. I know you're dying to know what the next ingredient is. Fifth ingredient, godliness. Godliness, I think modeled again by a, a lady in the New Testament. Her name was Lydia. And we find her in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Verse 14 tells us that there was a certain woman named Lydia and that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. But the verse goes on to say that the Lord opened her heart 
to heed the things spoken by Paul. In other words, at one point she didn't believe and God opened her heart and at another point she was all in godliness. She was a God seeker. And perhaps any one of us here in this room, those of you who are watching at home, maybe those seasons come where come and go where maybe you're more you're more aggressively or earnestly seeking God than others but know for certain that a God seeker is embracing godliness in their life we're told throughout scripture to seek the Lord. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. That's a conscious choice. That's something I am invited to do and commanded to do in scripture. Godliness, sixth ingredient. We're almost there. Brotherly kindness. Sixth ingredient, brotherly kindness. Many in scripture uh, model this for us. I think Peter is one, certainly. You remember Peter was so prejudiced against Gentiles. And he really thought that, you know, this, this saving grace of Almighty God is for the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone. You know, uh, Nehushtan with the the Gentile, and then all of a sudden he's up on the roof and he has a dream. And You know the story? God brings these uh, unclean foods down on a, on a sheet and he hears the voice of the Lord and says, Peter, rise and eat. And he, in his dream he says, not so, Lord. How can you call Jesus Lord and tell him no? You can't. They are mutually exclusive. But here you get a picture of Peter telling the Lord in this dream, not so, Lord, I've never eaten, any, eaten anything that's unclean. Uh, no, 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 no. And, and God says to him in the dream, do not call what I have cleansed unclean. And through the process of someone coming to his door, talking to him about the house of Cornelius, that there are people there that want to hear what he has to say, and Peter going, he arrives at this brotherly kindness revelation that the saving grace of God is for all. And he is transformed in that exchange to recognize that what God has done in his life, God wants to do in others' lives, and that that is expressed through brotherly kindness to all. Paul put it this way in Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, uh, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Preference to one another. Oh, there's a powerful mouthful. Do I prefer others over myself? That's brotherly kindness. The preference of others and their needs, their wishes, their, which is a weak word, their needs, their, uh, 
I love Proverbs 18.24. You may know it by heart. You may not. It always comes back to me when I see this out in the world. It says, uh, a man who has friends must be friendly. In other words, you, if you're going to have those uh, friends in your life, you've got to show yourself friendly. But it reminds us there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. All right, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, last ingredient, biggest ingredient, love. And it is the word agape, the love of God, and what better model do we have than Christ himself? Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his love, demonstrates as Pastor Austin pointed out, it's continuous. He did it once, but it continues to demonstrate itself all throughout time that Jesus demonstrates his love. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. And love, again, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And it manifests itself in in many ways, but this agape love. And how can an individual, you know, start with me, Lord, how can an individual, anybody in this room, how can we, in fact, First John tells us that if we, we love God but we hate man, the love of God is not in us. So if I need more love for people, I just need to say, Lord, you've given me love for people, Multiply it. Increase it. Give me a, a greater love for my fellow man. Give me a greater love for the body of Christ. Give me a greater love for your word. Give me a greater love for the working of your spirit. Give me a greater love for humility in my life. Give me a greater love. And on and on and on the list goes. Can you make that plea? Will you make that plea this week? God, give me a greater portion of your love. These are the things that Peter says we are to add to our faith. That's a sobering discourse, if you will. But God forbid that I would come and pick up this you know, series and, and pick up the verses where we left off and not see their importance and what the, the ultimate goal of, of maturity in the life of every Christian and growing up in the life of every Christian, that, that is being bespoken here. Those are the ingredients we add for fruitfulness in our Christian life. We add those seven ingredients to the six ingredients that God has already given us. And if you'll follow with me now to verse 8, we come to what's the cannonball of the whole thing. Notice it. Verse 8, the ingredients and their measurements and its accomplishment. It says, for if these things are yours, I don't do this very often, but I want you to say that with me. For if these things are yours, there's, there's an if there. So there's choice. 
It's not saying these things will be yours. It's saying you're to add these things to your faith. And if they are yours, I love the bombshell it comes. It says, if these things are yours, notice, and abound. Oh, say that with me. And abound. So it's not just possessing these seven ingredients. It is that. It begins with that. But having them abound, in other words, be many, be um, huge, a lot. Sorry, my English fails me. If these things are yours and they abound, notice what the promise is. The promise is that you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa. We used to sing a song back in the uh, early 80s, mid 80s. Lord, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. Lord, I want to know you. You want to know the Lord? If you don't want to know him, okay, that's a choice, right? Not that anybody here doesn't want to know him. You're probably here Sunday morning at church because you want to know him. Sometimes when I look back at what I say and how I say it, I go, why did you do that? And this is one of those reasons, but one of those times. Do you want to know the Lord more? Do you want a greater intimacy with the resurrected Christ? Then the promise is, add these things to your faith. We've talked about what they are. We've talked about what they look like. And now we're not, we're not ignorant of, of what I am to do. That if these things are yours, and they abound, you would neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we'll close with, with this. Because just as, as you know, the, the cannonball shoots out and says, oh, now I understand why Peter is so um, purposeful in what he's writing, and perhaps why Pastor Art is being so determined to get this one across is because my heart for each one of us, starting with myself, is that we grow up in the faith, that we become mature in the faith, and that we walk in a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that is uh, unsurpassable. Just There's this intimacy in all of your lives with Christ. That's my heart. That it not be superficial, that it not be, oh, I go to church, or, or that, you know, Jesus is, he's here in the book somewhere, I'll get to him later, or whatever, in whatever way you want to, uh, or I would like to determine or uh, say that there's not an intimate ongoing relationship. I know that many of you do and probably seek that often, but my heart is that each one of us would experience the joy of this kind of ongoing intimacy with God, with the Son of God. And that this lifelong process of growing up and becoming mature is something that we're on this road to do and, and these things are ours and they are abounding. But notice verse 9. 
because the antithesis does exist. Peter wouldn't have written it if it didn't. And in verse 9, he says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even unto blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. Wow. Not to get too deep theologically there, but there's, there's, you know, I, we got to close, but there's something happening here about uh, the individual that at once knew they were saved, walked with God, but has forgotten that they've been cleansed from their sin, so much so that they can't even see. They're blind. And their ability to see the hand of God, it's short. They can't see it. And maybe there's a Christian or three or five out there that today as I'm talking about this would say, well, yeah, I gave my heart to the Lord. I, I know I'm saved. But some of these virtue, some of these ingredients aren't existing in your life. Then that road leads to the one who lacks these things. And the life that lacks these things is short-sighted. It's blind. And a person is walking around forgetting that Christ died to forgive them of their sins. That's why we celebrate. That's why we're here. Let us never forget what God has given us what Christ has done and that we've been forgiven of our sins. Let us add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. You want to leave this place and be doing that? Start fresh. You can do that. We take the cup and the bread and we say, Lord, I hear you speaking to me. That's me. Maybe you came here today and these things are yours and they are abounding. Then it's, it's a cup and a bread of thankfulness. God, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in my heart and my life. But be clear that this cup and this bread are not for unbelievers. If you have not given your life to Christ, you can do that right now in the privacy of your heart. I pray you would let someone know and that we could walk with you and and help you. But this bread and this cup is not for someone who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ because they are symbols of his death, burial, and resurrection. If you've done that, you, you and I, we take it. The Bible says that we're not to take it in an unworthy manner. So the cup of thankfulness and bread, the cup and bread of, of rededication, or we let it pass. 
or we come to faith right now and take it in giving thanks. Thank you, Lord. Will you pray with me this morning? Team, will you come? Lord, as we have taken a look very clearly at what Peter has said to the believers of his day and throughout um, all of time, because we know your word will never fail. We hear it speaking to the heart of the body of Christ today that takes so many forms and so many looks so different in many ways. But Lord, we know that you, you don't change. So we ask you this morning to hear our heart. To see us coming to you in a fresh way. For we know you love us. We know you care. And you know every heart here. So Lord, we just ask you to have your way as we leave today, as we take this cup Speak what you want to speak to each of us. For we know you love us. You've already shown us. We ask it in Jesus' name.